Good evening. My name is Jo Watson. I'm the Director of Community Engagement here at the State Library Victoria. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the library tonight for what should be a fascinating insight into the state of Australian photojournalism. Tonight's event is held on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation and I wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. I'd also like to pay my respects to their elders past and present and the elders of any other communities that may be here tonight also. I'd like to give a warm welcome to Carolyn Dunbar, um, the Acting Regional Director of Media and Entertainment and Arts Alliance, to Michael Gawinda, our participating chair this evening, and our panellists tonight, Simon O'Dwyer, Faye Anderson, and Jill Julie Millerwick. So if you'd like to join me in welcoming them. Thank you. This evening we're gathered to hear from some of the nation's preeminent journalists and photojournalists about the state of Australian photojournalism. Susan Sontag once said that to collect photographs is to collect the world. She wrote that photographs alter and enlarge our notions of what is worth looking at and what we have a right to observe. Unlike writing, painting or drawing, she argued that photographic images are experience captured while what's written about a person or event is an interpretation, photographs do not seem to be statements about the world so much as pieces of it. The State Library has long shared Sontag's view that collecting photographs is to collect the world. That's why we've been collecting and preserving photography for about 160 years. From grim images um, taken by war photographers in the battlefields of Europe and the Pacific, to the joyous photography of Rennie Ellis, taken on the streets of Melbourne. Our collection contains more than a million photographs, images dating back to the dawn of photography. The State Library also archives newspapers dating back more than a century, and it's fitting, therefore, that we are hosting the 2014 Nikon Walkley Press Photography Exhibition. Whether the images in the exhibition are horrific or beautiful, funny or tragic, heartbreaking or heartwarming, this year's 89 short shortlisted photographs are the very best Australian photojournalism. As part of the exhibition, it's our pleasure to be hosting this panel discussion, which will in turn focus on photojournalism itself and the many struggles facing photojournalists today. Today, where we live in a world where smartphones, social media and the internet are again altering and enlarging our notions of what's worth looking at. Photojournalists face declining circulations, redundancies and casualisation of newsrooms, as well as in some places threats of censorship, imprisonment and violence. The Walkley Foundation play a vital role in supporting journalists in these challenging times. We're proud to partner with the Walkley Foundation for this exhibition and for tonight's event, and we look forward to continuing the partnership this year. I'd now like to introduce Carolyn Dunbar, representative of the Walkley Foundation and the Acting Regional Director of the Media and Arts Alliance Victoria Branch. Please welcome Caroline. Thanks, Joe, and hello, everyone. Um, and welcome to this special event as part of the Nikon Walkley Press Photography Exhibition. Um, as Joe said, I'm Carolyn Dunbar, the Acting Regional Director of the Victorian branch of the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance. Uh, the Walkley Foundation works a lot with MIA to celebrate and support Australian journalists and photographers. So it's great to be here on behalf of MIA and the Walkleys. 
Many of Australia's great photojournalists are based here in Victoria, so it's fantastic to be able to share and show this exhibition with the people of Melbourne and with Victoria. A big thank you to the State Library of Victoria for hosting the exhibition so these photographs can reach a wide audience around Australia. Nikon is the major partner of the Walkley's Press Photography Program, and without Nikon, these awards and exhibitions wouldn't be possible. And thanks to Epson for making sure these prints look so fantastic, you won't miss a detail. Uh, tonight you're in for a real treat with leading photojournalists and reporters discussing the world of photojournalism. Today, touching on the challenges and opportunities posed by new digital technology, social media and print newsrooms employing less and less photographers. We've seen full-time photographic staff slashed in news organisations around the world, and yet we've never had more photos at our fingertips. Anyone in the street can now capture an image and send it around the world instantly via social media but we still need professional photographers. And I'm sure tonight's discussion will tease out all of the unseen research, experience, technical skill, editing and instinct that go into the kind of outstanding news photographs you see on the show. So without further ado, uh, I'd like to welcome your participating chair for this evening's discussion, Michael Gawenda. Uh, Michael is one of Australia's best known journalists and authors. He held the position of editor-in-chief of The Age from 1997 till 2004. In a career that has spanned three decades, he has won numerous journalism awards, including three Walkley Awards. Michael was the inaugural director of the Centre for Advanced Journalism and remains as a fellow at the centre. In June 2014, Michael was appointed as a member of the Order of Australia for his service to the print media industry and his work to advance professional education and development. <coughs> The Nikon Walkley Awards for Excellence in Photojournalism celebrate outstanding Australian news photography. The exhibition includes the 2014 winners and finalists in the categories for news and sport photography. Uh, photographic essay, photo of the year and photographer of the year. There are also Nikon Walkley prizes for community and regional photography and portraiture. I hope you enjoy the exhibition. It will be shown uh, until February 8th, so please tell your friends um, and enjoy the rest of the evening. And thanks again for supporting Australian photojournalism. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you. Am I uh, being heard? Uh, well, thank you for that introduction. Um, it's great to be here tonight. Uh, I've got to say that I, uh, uh, I represent, um, uh, I'm a bit of a Neanderthal actually. Uh, I was a journalist uh, before social media, um, uh, before computers actually, even though part of my journalism I had to learn to use a computer. Um, but um, I was just sitting here thinking, uh, I'm just going to say this and introduce you to um, uh, to our panellists. They'll go along, we'll start with Simon and go along, um, and they'll uh, have a few words to say about their work. Uh, but I, I've been, I was a journalist for, for, keep saying three decades, but it was actually closer to five decades. <laughs> um, <clears throat> certainly over four. And I was just sitting here thinking, uh, in the millions of words that I read uh, when I was a journalist, uh, how many of those words do I actually remember? Uh, how many of the articles that I wrote uh, do I actually remember? Uh, and the answer is not that many. But I remember photographs. Um, I remember photographs that I saw when I was a kid. I remember photographs that I saw 
when I started to want to be a journalist. Um, I certainly remember photographs that, that were published in The Age and elsewhere when I was already a journalist. And I certainly remember photographs that were published in The Age when I was editor and I can remember um, uh, the thrill we all got when we had a great photograph. Um, editors, what a, what a thrill it was to have a great photograph because we knew, I knew, a great photograph on any event makes, makes the paper that day. Um, and I'm sure all of you have memories of, of photographs that you, you've seen with news photography or, or feature photography, photographs in magazines. Um, <clears throat> so it's very interesting that that's what I remember. And so it's very sad for me that so many of the photographers that I work with, who are a lot younger than me, uh, are no longer employed as full-time photographers. Some of those photographers risk their lives for the papers that they work for. Uh, and I believe they deserve better treatment than they received, um, much better treatment than they received. So it's with sadness, in a way, that, um, uh, that we're, for me, that we're gathered here tonight, because what I want to do, apart from being sad, uh, is talk about what sort of future there is for, for photojournalism. And we've got great people here to talk about that. So let's start with you, Simon. Simon is one of the great photographers of Melbourne and of Australia. He's a world-class photographer. He wasn't going to say that himself, but I'll say that for him. Um, he's a bit nervous, so um, he's going to read some. I didn't know he could write. Uh, <laughs> but he's going to read something, so please welcome Simon. Firstly, I'd like to say thank you for giving up your time to come and hear us speak tonight. I'm not a public speaker, so I'll try not to bubble my way through this, uh, these thoughts. I am an analogue man living in the digital world. The iWorld, as I like to call it. I have an iPhone. I have an iPad. I have an Instagram account and I have the internet. In the iWorld, I want to be heard as far as I can from the confines of my iWorld. My name is Simon O'Dwyer. As Michael has already said, I'm a newspaper photographer for The Age. And for the last 27 years, I've dedicated my life to storytelling through images. I began my cadetship in the darkroom at the age of 17 on the Warrnambool Standard newspaper learning the art of image making by printing other photographers' work. After six years, I resigned to freelance in Far North Queensland before returning to Melbourne to begin a life with the age. In that time, I've worked through all processes, from black and white film, to colour, to the closing of the darkroom, an introduction of computers and the first digital camera. A massive brick, so sophisticated, it produced a whopping two and a half meg file. Today, our digi digital cameras produce 50 meg files. With the first press of that button, newspapers around the world would change forever. It was the beginning of the internet and nobody could imagine in just a short period how our lives would change. 
In the eye world, our papers are closing in rapid numbers. And for me, this is a sad period in our history. For a society with a healthy and robust press is a society where everybody is held accountable. Our newspapers give voice to the little people who often otherwise go unheard. When we stand next to the powerful and influential, they know we are watching and listening. And when we know we are being watched and listened to, this spotlight not only holds us accountable, but can also encourage us to perform better. A mentor once said to me, before you can go out and photograph the world, you must first care about your own backyard. This is what I love about my paper. This is what I love about the age. It has given me a life exploring my own backyard to find the human stories that connect us as a community. When we sit to read a newspaper, it asks that you step inside and take a breather. The eye world, to me, feels like it is always pushing out and demanding an immediate reaction. Newspapers create a quiet space for thought and reflection, personal connection. A newspaper doesn't hum or need a cord or Wi-Fi, and it doesn't get upset if you spill your coffee on it. In the analogue world, I worked alongside 32 full-time photographers, men and women committed to the craft of journalism, and each day we would return as hunters and gatherers to a magical room to finish the shooting process. It was called the dark room. This cave with its soft red lights was a place where photographers would process films at speed. It was a place where we bonded as a family, where stories from the day's adventures were shared and knowledge was passed down from the most senior to the junior. In this cave, the print was everything. And although we were a family, we were also each other's fiercest competitor. As your print dried, ready to be presented for the daily news conference, each photographer would quietly study your image and make a judgment on its success or its failure. This room bred excellence, for in this dark, you could not hide. In the eye world, we now have seven full-time photographers, and laptops and iPads and iPhones have replaced the darkroom. We are now satellites moving from one place to the next in our cars. We wait to receive an assignment by text and email. We then navigate the traffic to the subject's location, and when this assignment is completed, we turn on our computers, download, enhance, upload, and with the touch of a button, hit send. We then wait for the next assignment. In the eye world, in the eye world, I cannot remember the last time a reporter travelled with me. In the eye world, I can go days or even weeks before seeing the face of another photographer. In the eye world, our jobs are an ever increasingly solo affair. But for the negatives of the eye world, there are also the positives. Never before have photographers had the freedom to tell their own journalism, independent of a writer. And although our worlds are complementary, we both see through different eyes due to the nature of each other's lens. In the eye world, 
photographers now have platforms where images can be layered with words and sound to add more depth to the storytelling narrative. We have access to Facebook and to Instagram and our audience is worldwide. But I'm curious, does being able to reach the world make your work more connected or does an intimate conversation like tonight resonate with more power? Tonight, I don't stand before you as any expert. I, like you, have more questions about the eye world than I have answers. What I do know is this is a beast that changes its shapes and colours every day. And this beast is both our future and facilitator to our possible demise. It demands more and more from us while we try and keep pace with less and less. It is a two-sided coin, for even though the eye world has opened up doors for photographers unlike ever before, the institutions that they rely on are becoming smaller and smaller, making it harder and harder to make a living. In the analogue world, a film camera could last a decade. In the eye world, a digital camera has a few years at best. We are constantly upgrading to keep pace with rapidly changing technology in order to remain with rapidly sorry. We are constantly updating to keep pace with rapidly changing technology in order to remain relevant. Newspaper photography is no longer just about capturing an image and telling a story with the pressure of meeting tomorrow's deadline. In the eye world, it is all about speed. Hours are condensed into minutes so that, it, so that everything becomes a here and must be made available now. Success is measured by one's ability to meet ever-decreasing deadlines and audiences' ever-increasing demands for this information in the here and now 24 hours a day. This makes one's ability, one's ability to navigate technology to keep up with technology and to upgrade technology paramount. Thank you. You could have been a reporter. <laughs> <laughs> Not that that would have done you any good now anyway. No. Uh, okay, so, Faye, it's your turn. Please welcome Faye Anderson, everybody. Thank you, everyone, and um, I echo Simon's point about attending. Thank you very much. Um, I'm here actually um, representing a project. We got an ARC grant, an Australian Research Council grant, to write um, and research the history of press photography in Australia, which is a very neglected um, um, history. It involves myself, Michael Gowenda, Sally Young, and Kate Darien-Smith, and Nikki Henningham um, as our project manager, in partnership with the Walkley Foundation and the National Library of Australia. And part of the um, project is we are interviewing 60 press photographers. Our oldest, I suspect, is about um, 84, which would be Ray Blackburn, um, who I've been interviewing. Um, and our youngest is probably around 40. And so we see these seismic changes and we see the enormous impact that their work has and it's been an enormous privilege to interview them. So. On the basis of that, and in many ways, I'm actually just translating or communicating what I've heard from these interviews, um, I'd like to sort of raise three issues, many of which Simon has sort of teased on anyway. 
The first is, of course, the changes both technologically but also in terms of the workplace. The redundancies, for example, in the Herald Sun in 2012 and then later um, 45 photographers were made redundant in News Limited. Fairfax, more recently, about 30 photographers lost their jobs. And when you speak to the old-timers, they talk about these sort of huge um, groups of photog um, photographers that interacted, they learnt the importance of the dark room, that then became digital, glass plate negs, to filing live, black to white, all of these incredible changes. It's no less dire anywhere else. Sports Illustrated, I'm not sure if you're aware. And there's a paradox here because Illustrated is part of the important part of the magazine, has just made um, all their journalists and photographers, sorry, all their photographers redundant and they will now freelance. For Fairfax and indeed News Corp as well, they're using agency images and that's Getty. And that's my first image that I wanted to put because um, it's Philip Hughes. This is the fifth most popular tweet in Australia from last year. But more importantly, it was sourced from a Getty photographer. And what reminds me as I, as I go through newspapers now is the photographer is not named. We don't know who the photographer is. So these sort of, these changes have also impacted on their working conditions as well. So now we're, they're not bylined, we don't know where, they, where they're coming from, we don't know their names, and it just becomes far more anonymous. The second image that I wanted to show is the good, the, the liberation of photography. And this is um, a website and a project which involved Kate Geraghty, who is one of Fairfax's most talented photographers. And it reminds us that the digital revolution has created an amazing opportunity for photographers to provide additional content. And as Simon also mentioned, producing multimedia content and assignment to take extra responsibility in the way their story is told, to be editor, to be um, journalist as well, and to provide an additional dimension. Also, it allows, if there is enough funding, for the photographer and the journalist to talk about stories that are usually not reported, sexual violence, women and Africa, which is often um, one of the more neglected parts of the world. The last image is a prevailing concern for many photographers and also journalists, and this is a website from the Australian Defence Force that has over 198,000 photographs in the public domain. So what is happening now is the photographers are now, or the, or the editors, or the journalists, are sourcing their photographs from the organisations themselves. So that accountability, that interaction, is actually getting lost. So they're sort of the three issues that I wanted to briefly mention. Lastly, just as a, as a reminder about the paradox, the more demand that we have for these photographs, and yet these seismic changes and the reduction in the photographers themselves. 200 million photos are uploaded on Facebook every day. 1.838 million are uploaded every day on Flickr, and 40 million photos are pasted, posted daily to Instagram. So there's often, obviously, this amazing demand. But what has happened is, of course, it's very problematic. Thank you. Thank you for that, Faye. Um, so, Julie, it's your turn. Thank you, Michael. My name is Julie Mullowick, and like Simon, I began in a darkroom in the 1970s, darkroom of Athel Smith, John Cato and Peter Barr, and I gradually worked my way out into the light. 
when I went out and did, and did jobs as a freelance, which was unusual then, uh, press jobs that is, I would routinely have John Lamb working next to me or Bruce Possel. That was actually terrifying, but it was also really inspiring. And they, Simon talked about mentorship, you know, for young, for young people coming through, as I was then, um, that kind of support was absolutely crucial. I, I have worked as, as a freelance my entire life, and it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough business. But I have also worked on personal projects, and I think if you are going to be successful in this business, you have to maintain your passion and your commitment, and you have to tell stories, create images that come from the heart that you want to tell people about. And, you know, somebody's not paying you to do that, but your passion and your commitment will ensure the success of that work. In 1988, I started working part-time at La Trobe University, where I still work part-time, and I set up photojournalism for them. In uh, 2009, that teaching went 100% online. An extraordinary business, an extraordinary change to the way that people are taught. And it's a very rigorous course. It was developed with my, with my background. And of course, it also involves lots of other professionals right at the top of their working uh, school level. Uh, and we have a lot of interviews, very valuable information coming from them. We have a lot of graduates working in the industry, including Alex Ellinghausen up in the uh, Canberra Press Gallery. So photography, I assume because you're here, you love it like we love it. And I've got one image to talk about, and it's this one. <laughs> made by Baz Radner from Reuters in Sierra Leone. Look at that person in the foreground, the victim. He's just like you and me. He's gone off for the day, prepared. He's got his clean clothes on, he's got his Nikes, etc., and he's been struck down with the Ebola virus. Look at the background. What are those people doing with their cameras, their phones? They're using them as small mobile photocopiers. That's what they're doing. Whereas the Reuters photographer is using the camera to interpret what it is he feels in his heart or his, uh, or his mind, or maybe both, at that moment in time. And he is making the image work. He's like Simon. He goes out with his camera and he makes the image work because he brings to it passion, commitment, and incredible understanding of the visual literary skills so crucial to creating strong images. Those skills are inherent, are, are, are clearly visible in every successful photograph because the camera has been used in a way to speak to us. It has not been used as a small mobile photocopier, which is what is happening there, and which is what happens so often now. And it disturbs me, it distresses me, the way that the quality 
uh, in some newspapers and magazines, and indeed in most in a lot of publications, brochures, annual reports, and so forth and so on, have the quality has been downgraded because somebody picks up their phone, goes click with their little mobile photocopier, which happens to be an iPhone, and the photograph is used. And it distresses me because I love photography. I am passionate about it. I am passionate about teaching our students to create images at the strongest possible level and not to use their phone or their whatever it is, their camera, in that way. So that's the image that I put up because I feel so strongly about that. Thank you. Okay, thank you. We're just going to spend a few minutes uh, talking amongst ourselves. You can listen in if you want to. Um, and then we'll take some, uh, some questions um, from, from the audience. Um, I, I had these questions that I was going to ask you, but I'm not going to ask most of these. So um, I want to ask you the last memorable photograph you saw on Facebook that you can remember, that you can actually remember that stayed in your mind. It'd have to be from the, the Sydney hostage siege, which was uploaded by, I think, the Telegraph shot the photograph when the... Did you see it in print as well? Yes. Well, yep. that doesn't count then. OK. So it has to be. <laughs> it has to be. So it has to be a Facebook photograph. You didn't see... You didn't, how many millions of these are uploaded every day? I know. How many millions do you guys look at? So how many of you do you remember? Zero. Faye? You haven't got a long time. Five I know, seconds. I know. If they're doggy photos, I notice. If they're family photos. Is there a particular doggy photo, though? You can't just say doggy photos. <laughs> well, it's my dog. But it depends, it depends on the resonance it has. So if it's a family photo, you forget. But they're usually so In other words, she can't remember a single photograph. I can, but uh, uh, it's forgettable, usually. Julie, can you? No, Michael, I can't. I, can't I mean, I'll tell you why I asked that question, because we are, we are, we are bombarded with photographs. I mean, we, we live in a world where images are just coming at us all the time. Um, and I believe that we don't remember any of them. Uh, um, they, they disappear before, before you've had time to absorb them. Um, and I think, so, where I'm going with that is... Given that print is, um, is dying, and uh, well, it is dying, um, which means that print photography will, will die with it, um, and that there was a kind of power of, that print had in terms of photography that was made pictures that were great, memorable, they stuck in your head. Given that, that that's dying, uh, does it matter whether we now have professional photographs or amateur photographs on, on uh, websites or on Facebook or on uh, Twitter? Does, does it matter anymore? I think that uh, if you have a look at the work of, say, Bruce Postle, John Lamb, their photographs in 50 years' time, when the new generation of human beings are born, they're going to look back at those images, and I say images because we don't take photographs, we make images. We, they're very thought out, very calculated. That They are so succinct about who we are as Australians and our culture and our community that in 50 years' time, if you look back, you'll get a sense of what it was or how we 
lived. And that's the difference, I think, is that great imagery really gives you a sense of who you are and the place that no you No matter belong. where they're published. No matter no whether matter they're published on, in print <coughs> or online or wherever. I think print has more power, you know, because a newspaper is an organic thing. You can touch it, it sits. It just sits there still. And as I was saying before, is it's a place to breathe, like it's a place to really sit and to absorb. And when you see a photograph on a print page, it allows you to go into it. And I don't get that sense looking at images on a computer. Phil, you teach, uh, you're still teaching photography. I mean, are there, are there different skills involved, uh, a different way of looking at photography involved if, in the digital age if your photographs are basically going to be published digitally only? No, we teach... When I set that course up in 1988 as uh, analogue, we still teach exactly the same way as far as content and concept and technical quality. I mean, obviously, we don't teach silver-based, you know, wet photography any, anymore, so all of that technical stuff is quite, is quite different. But the power of the image, the strength of the image and how you achieve that whether it's the decisive moment or whether it's uh, just using every visual literacy skill at your fingertips is still the same. So, but, but, so the fact that it's only going to be published, I don't mean only, but it's going to be published di digitally doesn't make any difference? No. We want the best image, the, absolutely the best image. And whether it's going to just be seen on a screen or it, or it is going to be published in hard copy is irrelevant. We want the best image. So what do you think, Faye? Does it change photography? Um, it's changed photography profoundly, but I think... I was, I was just going through today, actually, on Facebook, but I have links to various newspapers, and it's, of course, the 70th anniversary of um, the liberation of Auschwitz. And the, you know, the liberation and the concentration camp photos profoundly changed newspaper photography. And I think even, and I've seen them in hard copy, I've actually seen the Imperial War Museum, because I've researched there, it still has, those images still have the most haunting resonance online as they do in hard copy. I think great photography by great photographers doesn't lose its impact wherever it is. Do you remember the photograph of... Um, I want to stay on this theme. Do you remember the photo? Everyone will remember it, of the little girl running down the road in, in yeah, uh, the napalm yeah. girl? Yeah, uh, well, of course, how, how can you possibly get that out of your mind? You, you, it's unforgettable. Do, do we have images from Iraq or, or uh, from Afghanistan, especially given that we, the Afghanistan's war covered digitally for to, uh, in terms of photographs, do we have those sort of images? Do they stick in our minds the same way as that image did? You want to go first, then? Uh, no. Um, I've been to Afghanistan three times. Um, you have to be embedded with the Australian Defence Force. You have to sign a contract about this big. basically says that uh, if you operate outside their perimeters, you can be arrested and sent to jail for 50 years. It's very controlled. It's very controlled what you see. Um, <coughs> A, a very senior figure in the Australian Defence Force said that there is a great hole 
in the history of our time in Afghanistan because it has not been photographed as it should. So when I go to Afghanistan, I get embedded, I become a soldier, I travel with them, we go out on paroles. And one of the conditions that we had was that they had to look at the images first. And their concern was that they possibly had spooks in the photograph that needed to be um, sort of blurred out for their own protection. We made it very clear to the Australian Defence Force that if an Australian soldier was killed, that we would photograph it. Now, in the time that I was there and that never got put to the test, the Australian Defence Force did say in their defence that they needed 24 hours to notify the family before we publish the photograph. All I can say is... And so Kate Gerrity, who is a photographer on the SMH, her and a writer went to Afghanistan, independent of the Australian Defence Force. And the Australian Defence Force did everything in their power to stop them from moving around the country. So no, we're not going to get those images. One, I think we're afraid to publish them. And two, we're so controlled now. We have more people in PR than we have journalists. Everything is controlled by PR. And the Australian Defence Force are masters, and I would say paranoid, about control. Um, they actually also always have been. Um, Vietnam, we see it as an uncensored war, but in terms of Australia, and I've gone through the newspapers, you know, you have the most extraordinary photographs from America that are published in Australia, but... I went through one month, I saw three images. One of Normie Rowe getting his hair cut, another one of three female singers about to go to Vietnam, and another one of a warm um, embrace where they're going. Australia actually is always very protected, but, you know, and, and Simon's comments are completely echoed by anyone that I've um, interviewed. It is the most censored Western media in terms of... Um, what the Australian military are doing overseas. We don't know, we don't see, we don't hear, and it's, it's a great tragedy. Well, that's true just not, in terms of, not just in terms of photographs, of course, it's true in terms of the reporting as well. It's totally yeah. controlled. Um, I, think, I think it's a really sad day when you have to make, uh, try and make an alliance with either the Americans or the Dutch to go out and photograph a war that you're part of. Mark we're, just going, Mark, we're just going back to, to your question about the uh, photograph from Vietnam taken in uh, April 69 by Nick Orchard, the little girl running down the road with napalm burns. In the year before that, in January 68, that, that the napalm burns photograph was taken by Nick Orchard, a Vietnamese photographer. In the previous year, January 68, Eddie Adams took that photograph of General Lo An um, executing the Viet Cong suspect at point-blank range, three o'clock in the afternoon, you know, broad daylight. And I can distinctly remember opening the... I was working in Washington, D.C. at that time as a secretary, which is what I was in my former life. I opened the Washington Post, was on the front page, and, and was knocked backwards. If we think of 1968, everything was censored. 
You know, you went to the cinema, you never saw violence or, or overt sexuality. We were, a, we were a society that was not in any way desensitised to violence or, you know, any of the other sort of overloads that we get now. And I, and I think that that also plays a part. Um, I'm not saying it's the complete reason, but I think it also plays a part in why we do not have the memorable little Kim running down the road sticking in our mind or, you know, the Eddie Adams photograph anymore because it just doesn't have that impact anymore. I think that's incredibly sad and distressing, actually, but I think that's, that's part of the reason. You know, one of the things... Um one of the things that um, uh, we all just have a little, uh, a few minutes on is the role of um, um, <clears throat> of the iPhone and social media in terms of photography, because a lot of a lot in a lot of places around the world now, journalists and photo journalists are barred from going in, and the only images we actually get uh, are taken by local people on uh, iPhones that they post on the net. So they play an increasingly important role. I mean, one of the things that's happened is that governments have learnt, especially governments that can control these issues, that having journalists in the country when they're doing bad stuff is not a good idea. Um, and so they keep them out. So we are now more and more uh, in the hands of the iPhone uh, and social media. Is that true? Simon, and what does it mean for professional photographers like you? I think there's a place for both. So I'm not anti-citizen journalist. I think they can do a wonderful job. I think that... I think... I think with us, though, we are the author of our work right? and we have to be account held accountable for that. And we are held accountable for being the author of our work. With citizen journalism you're not quite sure where it's come from, how they got it. You don't know that information. So I think there's a, there's a lot more work that we have to do to verify a photograph. How did it get it? Where was it taken? Were they on private property? Was it taken legally? Was it taken illegally? We just don't know. And that's my concern. But we can't compete. We cannot compete with... If... Touch wood, a bomb went off out there. There would be 100 people that would photograph it straight away. Now, we can't compete with that, but that's not our job anymore. That's not the reason why I'm employed on the Age newspaper. I'm employed on the Age newspaper to give us a different way of looking at the world. As far as competing with a news event, there will always... And I think 9-11 was a classic example. I mean, millions of images were taken by not only professionals, but by people on the street. And it's an incredible coverage of that event. And each one of those photographs is valid. 9-11's interesting, though, because there were. There's thousands of images. We've seen them. Probably the most, one of the most memorable was taken by a professional photographer, and that was The Falling Man. Is everyone aware mm -hmm. of that? Because it was... It was such a haunting photograph, but it was also framed beautifully. So, yeah, I would agree. I think citizen journalism or photographers do have a place. Um, and I think... But I think verification is very important. And 
and, and the context. And, you know, you can see a photograph, but you don't know its context. Um, and you can roll out that cliche about a photograph is a thousand words, but if you don't know the words, and no one ever knows the next part of that quote, if you don't know the words, you can't always understand the photograph. Well, I'm sorry. sorry. I, no, no, I think <laughs> in, in the context of that, like, th there's that old saying that, you know, a photograph doesn't lie. But a photograph doesn't necessarily tell the whole truth either. Yeah, so, so I, think, I think it has got both places, but I, I would hate that idea that professional photo photographers who have got the training have got ethics, and I think ethics is really important. Um, I think we have to have both, but I, I, I wouldn't like to privilege a citizen journalist over a professional journalist. In 9-11, um, James Nathway, how many people know who James Nathway is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the greatest war photographers of our time. On the day of 9-11, he was supposed to go out of the country on assignment, but he had just come back from another assignment. He was too tired. And uh, so he gave it to a friend of his who took off. And that morning, 9-11 <coughs> happened not far from his studio. And this is the difference between a professional photographer, in my opinion, is that when everybody else is running away, we are running at it. We will run into hell in order to find an image that can sum up what is happening in our world. I think you saw with my fire photograph, that fire was about 4,000 degrees and it was like B-52 bombs dropping around us. And it's the only time that I've ever felt my organs as being three-dimensional because I was cooking from the inside out. Now, before I shot that frame, we were running down a path and I could see the gate and I knew if that firefighter got past the gate, I lost my photograph. But at that point in the time, we could hear the fire. It's like standing behind a Boeing 747, but couldn't see the fire. So here I am running flat out, trying to keep my composition between this gate, screaming at this fire, going, show your bloody self, at which it did just as it got to the gate. It went bang. I went click. It threw me probably about five metres and I ended up in the paddock. At that point in time, I sort of got my composure. I'd broken a lens. I looked at the back of my camera and I went, I beat you. Now, how the hell do I get to a safe place? And it, no joke, it was like being in a movie. So I, I couldn't see the house, but I saw the edge of the fence. So I ran up the fence and then the shed exploded. And then I ran flat out into the hedge. And then the CFA captain come running around, jumped over the top of me, went, for Christ's sake, Odwise, to stop lying around, we've got shit to do, you know. <laughs> but for me, that's the difference. In chaos, in chaos, we will be completely com composed and we will be just thinking about an image that tells a story so you, the viewer, who have never been there, can get touched on an emotional level. That was really beautiful. It was really beautiful, Simon. And that, that crucial word in there, as you talked about the gate, my composition, holding, holding my composition, you know? I think that is really the difference between the citizen journalist and... and I think for the citizen, it's a press. Yes. They're an oppress. For us, yeah. it's journalism. Yeah. Journalism 
every the, the reason it's an image is because every part of it, the last part of it is pressing a button. Every other part of it is calculated and conscious thought. That's right. Because, as I said before, you are using the camera to interpret your emotions and your responses and not as a small photocopier, which is... And that's a great term. I love it. Yeah. Um, I just, I just want to say something um, that is quite that is quite interesting. I think when you were talking about um, 9/11, as you all, you're all aware of the Magnum Photo Agency, which is one of the most prestigious photo agencies in the world, and you have to be invited to to join, and then you have a five-year sort of initiation period, and you might be successful at the end, and you might not. Um, Trent Park is the only Australian member of it. Uh, they had their AGM in New York on the night before... Oh, really? 9-11. And uh, so, the, so the next day, New York City was full of Magnum photographers, including the one you just, you just referenced. So. OK, so we're... we're sorry, Michael, to, sorry. Uh, I was telling... You better hurry up because yeah, we sorry. have to... I was telling a story about James Nathway when I sort of got a bit sidetracked. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a picture of a church. It's got a cross on it. One of the towers is falling down behind it. In all of that chaos, he saw the church, he made the connection between the building, framed it, shot it. It is, without doubt, one of the most incredible pieces of journalism or visual journalism I've ever seen in my life. Well, I remember the photograph. It's a great photograph. Uh, look, we're going to uh, we're going to stop now and, and give you a chance to uh, to ask some questions. Thank you very much for this interesting uh, talk. It's fascinating. But we were talking about images from Vietnam. My brother was over there, and I think a lot of the I might be wrong, and you can straighten me out. But a lot of the images we saw, I believe, or I heard, were. Um, directed, uh, there was the one about Saddam Hussein being pulled down by the American soldiers. Now, I read that that was just completely set up. It never, it, it wasn't spontaneous, and uh, it, the, the, whoever was taking the photos composed that, kept other photographers out, and had chosen soldiers and locals Involved is that is that true? Well, is that well, it's, well, it's pro it may be true, and I remember reading about it. But of course, that wouldn't have been the first time a war photograph. Oh, was, absolutely was not. Up. But um, you, I mean, the famous Iwo Jima photograph was rehearsed and then right, and then set up and yeah. uh, taken. So, well, well, that was one image I but remember. But it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that the actual image lied. I mean, the the thing was coming down. Uh, uh, the statue of, of Saddam was being taken down. Um, yeah, that's why it's so important that images go with words yeah. so that somebody is there, a reporter's there, to explain what this image was. Right, right. So that's what I, I was fed through the words, yes. Yes. Um, I'm interested in the issue of mentoring in the training process. Uh, it seems to me that... Years ago, when you had a lot more journalists and a lot more photographers, you were, you were learning on the job from other people. What Simon described was going out on your own, never seeing other people, and, and how that has impacted on how you develop as a photographer. You're not learning so much from the journalists you went out with or the other photographer you see on the, on the job. Simon? 
It's probably a little bit different for me now because I've been doing it for half my life, you know, so, so I probably don't quite need that but much. But do you mentor anybody? Um, I have students. Uh, not that many this year, but I used to take uh, two students from PSC and RMIT. Um, and uh, my old students are still really good friends and they're now actually working in the industry. And a classic example is a photographer called Meredith O'Shea. When I became picture editor of the, age, uh, the Sunday Age newspaper, uh, so impressed. Uh, she was just straight out of PSC. So impressed was I with her work that uh, she ended up working for me for five years. Now, the difference between Meredith is Meredith was not only a photographer, but and photographers, journalists, but, but Meredith would actually go and gather stories. And she would bring those stories to us. And then we would get somebody to write them. So I think now in, in this modern world now, I think that's a really... That's a great way of operating. For me, I pretty much work solo now. Yeah. But I guess, I guess but, the question was... But that was, doesn't, that doesn't that, mean that... That wasn't that question. Uh, that you yeah. do. But, but the fact is that uh, this is true not just in photojournalism, but in uh, journalism generally. <clears throat> so much experience and talent has gone out of, the, out of newspapers uh, and so uh, reporters and photographers uh, are so busier <clears throat> than they ever were, so much busier than they ever were in the past that I'd imagine that mentoring would be one of the last things that people would do and there wouldn't be those people there anymore to do the mentoring. Yeah. I mean, the youngest person, youngest photographer in the age was 40 years old. Yeah. I mean, we haven't had a cadet for... Well, I've been there for 20 years and I think I was the last cadet. So That's not true. We have had cadets. No, photographically. Yes, I was there. We had cadets. But anyway, <laughs> we'll have this argument later. Uh, um, so we'll take another couple of questions. There is another point, though, with the mentoring and it's... The, it's the experience that I've had interviewing the photojournalists, um, it's not just the mentoring that's lost, it's actually their emotional support. So I've interviewed a lot that have either had post-traumatic stress disorder or have had, you know, and both Simon and Julie have talked about um, the, the sort of emotional consequences of taking photographs. And now, you know, a lot of the time that darkroom functioned as a place where you learnt but also you spoke... You could talk about how you felt. You had you smoked cigarettes. The pub was the other side, which again is probably shifted slightly, but not enormously. But I, I am concerned when I have spoken and interviewed um, journalists and but photographers at this point that that support, that level of emotional support, has possibly diminished as well. Simon. Yeah. When um, I mean the great thing about the darkroom was that it was it was. And I say a cave because the the writers would be terrified to come in it because I'm not sure if people realise, but a dark room doesn't need doors. It's, it's got a U-shape because light can't bend, so you don't actually need doors. So the writers would stand out there and they'd yell, they'd yell, Simon, are you in there? You know, because they'd be terrified of trying to walk around the dark U-shape. So for us, it was a cave. You know, it was a, it was a cave on every level, emotional support. You know, if you had a bad day, you could go in there and have a cry because, you know, you're in a processing room, no one can see you. And trust me, a lot of that happened. 
a lot of photographers would come in, close processing door, if they just dealt with something really quite tragic or quite emotional, and they would sit in the dark and cry, and then they'd come out. And while you're printing the photograph, while you're dodging them burning, you'd be just chatting, not looking at each other, you know, because you just, you don't want to make it even more harder. But in that space, you could actually just get it out, you know. Then you work on the print. You've made, even though something quite tragic, beautifully tragic. And in a sense, it, it was counselling. Now, you know, as I said, I can go days or weeks without actually speaking to another photographer. So the only way now that we really catch up, really, is outside of the age. So I live in a forest, you know, have a big open fire. Photographers come up to my place. We sit around the fire and we chat. Okay, so we take some more questions. Okay. Hello guys, thanks so much for the chat. Um, I'm in my early 20s, I love photojournalism and I love journalism and I'm kind of, it gets really depressing to hear how it's all dying. So can you please perk me up and tell me where we can actually go from here? You're alive. <laughs> you're alive, you've got a brain and you've got a pair of eyes and you can do anything. Just because our industry is in bad shape and we don't know if it's going to fall over or not. I don't think it is. I just think it's going to, we're going to look back and go, this is just a really horrible period in our history. I think we'll recover. You can tell a story about anything and you can do a photographic essay about anything and you can tie those two together. And if you make it powerful enough and poignant enough, then somebody like me who's a picture editor will buy it. If I could just add to that... Um I agree 100%. Initiate projects, work on them. You know, I was sitting outside the front of the uh, State Library before because I arrived a bit early and I was thinking, God, somebody should do a photo story on, on this amazing place. Just the, the cross-section of people that kind of passed through, hung around, did things from staff to, you know, just general people who were there, to these amazing backgrounds that were changing all the time with the light, including the background of all that kind of material sacking or whatever it's called, you know, that is up because of the construction that's happening. I mean, that's, that's kind of really simple. You don't have to go to, Af Af to Afghanistan. You can just, you know, spend and I'm talking about night time as well, and during the rain, no matter what's happening, spend time there, build it up, talk to people, initiate that yourself and commit yourself to it. I mean, that's a really simple example, but it has amazing potential. And um, it's something that I believe in passionately, that you initiate your own projects, work on them, commit yourself to them, and then you know, do something with it when you've got a strong body of work that you can confidently show somebody, and that might be a publisher, um, like, for example, Five Mile Press. Um, I use that example because the photographer that I did my training with, Andrew Chapman, now supports him, and Simon would have worked side by side with Andrew you know, for years, because Andrew worked mainly, also freelance, worked mainly for Time Warner. Now he works only on personal projects, and he's on about his fifth or sixth book. His, his current book um, is called The Long Paddock. He worked on it for about a year, and he's just sold, I was just talking to him the other day, he's just sold 15,000 copies. Um, 
and you, you know, you, you just have to commit yourself to it. You have to find something that nobody else is doing. If, you, if, if, if we just talk about publishing for the moment, photojournalism in, 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 in publishing, if you go into a bookshop, you'll find a stack of books on dogs. <laughs> and, 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 you'll, and you'll find a stack of books on sheds. So keep away from that, okay? Think. <laughs> Think, what could I, you know, what can I do that I'm really interested in, that, you know, there's a market out there, people are going to love this, and go for it, you know? I've just done that, that, um, that Australia-wide book for the centenary of World War I with several of my um, Year 3 students, and we, you know, because they're all over Australia, and Five Mile have published it. We've just sold, it's only been on the market six weeks and we've sold 6,000 copies. Um, and so think about stuff like that. Think about stuff that's coming up. Of course, you have to work like 14 months, 18 months ahead. Think about something that's coming up, like I thought, thought about the centenary of World War I. Ah, centenary of World War I, what can we do? You know? And like, it took me like four or five months to work it out because I'm not very bright. But we got there, you know, and, and they loved it. The publisher loved it. It's selling. So um, don't, be, don't be discouraged. Just follow your passion. If I, if I could just add on to that as well. And it does, at, this does at times sound like a depressing conversation, really, because we are in trouble. And as a young photographer, I would hate to be in your position, having had the life that I've had, and I've had an incredible life, you know, I've, newspapers have given me three lives, three lifetimes, I really feel blessed and honoured to have had that, but if I can lift your spirits up a little bit, today I got a message on Instagram, and on it I had a photograph of a man called Shock Tai. And I think he was on there, the man who's missing the eye with the burns on his face. I don't know if it showed up or not. Yep. Shock Tai, when he was a 17-year-old boy, was riding his motorbike. It crashed, the fuel tank split open, poured over 90% of his body, caught on fire. His family was so poor, he was Cambodian, his family was so poor that they could not afford to take him to the hospital. He lay inside the family home for a year and they managed to save enough money to buy in two sets of painkillers. So can you imagine the pain? Anyway, I catch up with Shock Thai, and I've been now going back to Cambodia over the last decade, and we have a really good laugh. The last time I saw him, I gave him a print, and he said, be careful, you're making me look too handsome. I won't make any money from begging. But Shock Thai's face, and especially his eye, is horrific. It really is, but he's a beautiful, beautiful man with a beautiful family and I've been very, very lucky to get to know him. Anyway, the point of my story. Today I got a message, so I posted this photograph on my Instagram site. Today I got a message from a lady going, we need to raise money in order to get him to a Western hospital so we can fix his face and his eye up. At which I wrote back to her, that sounds brilliant, I'm now going to have to go to Cambodia and ask Shot Thai if that's what he would like. She said, if he says yes, I will work with you to raise the money and find the organisations that can get him to fix it. That's how powerful your work can be. That's what you can do for another human being purely by making an image. So, go out, take on the world. Um, can I... I 
just want to say I agree entirely with everything you're saying, but from the other perspective, from uh, I guess a, an edit, editor perspective for some people, the um, overriding factor for some people, some editors, is the almighty dollar. And you're talking about the millions and millions of images that are taken every day, that are uploaded every day. Um, often you're just looking for a, an image that will convey um, the event as it's happened. You may not necessarily want to spend the money on a professional photographer who's put all that effort and, and hard work into creating the perfect image. You might just go through a thousand images and find one that works. What would you say to the editors to say, we need the better images? We need, as the audience, to see the better images. How do you convey that to the editors to say it's more important than the dollar? Well, can I just say, I mean, uh, um, <clears throat> editors, uh, in my experience, aren't motivated by the almighty dollar. Um, they're motivated, the editors I've known, to produce the best possible newspaper or magazine or, or TV current affairs program that they can possibly uh, produce within the budgets that they're allocated uh, uh, by the media companies that employ them. Um, they have to work within those budgets. I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, nowadays uh, editors don't even get budgets. Um, uh, they're not told what they've got, they're just told to uh, keep cutting costs. Um, so uh, I don't think it's editors that... Uh, uh, my experience is that most editors want to have the best possible image they can get. They want to employ the best photographers that they can employ. Uh, the best journalists that, than, uh, that they can uh, employ. But unfortunately, we're in a time right now where that just isn't possible, not in the commercial media. Uh, I've got to say, that's why the ABC is so damn important at the moment. Uh, the ABC has a business model that works until this government started pulling the business model apart. But it's got a business model that works. We fund it. Uh, we fund it, so it can do work that the commercial media increasingly is not able to do. Um, but, uh, you know, the fact is that the commercial, uh, the newspapers, newspapers aren't what they once were, and they'll never be that again. They might survive in some fashion, uh, but they won't, they won't survive in, in the way that they were in the past. But... But what they're doing, the way they're going about building their future is appalling, in my view. They think that the answer uh, to, uh, to the digital revolution is to cut their journalists and photographers uh, uh, by more than half and have this mantra that quality won't be affected. Well, it's just a lie. Uh, it is affected, and all of you know it's affected. Um, so we end up in a situation where people like Simon, with a sort of passion that Simon's got, and the commitment that he has given to his newspapers, and the risks he has taken to get the photographs that he has taken, he's still got a job, but lots of his colleagues 
are unemployed. I don't want to be... See, that young lady over there, you will have a future. It'll be a well, different future than the past, than the, than the future that Simon had, where he worked for one media organisation for the, all of his career. You'll have to get work across a, a range of different media. Um, and that media is available. And you will be able to build a career on that. You won't be a millionaire <laughs> doing that. You might even not be particularly well off, but you'll <laughs> love what you do. Uh, but if, people, if, but if, people... If I could just say one thing. Uh, a lot of my friends were freelancers and there was a period where um, at one point I had a tent in my lounge room uh, because my home was uh, a place for freelance photographers who were out doing their assignments and had nowhere to come home to, to live. Now, I got sick and tired of having freelance photographers shit all over my house, so I went out and bought a tent, set it up in my land room, threw all their shit in it, when that's where you live. Now, if you can imagine coming home to a dinner party and there's somebody lying in a tent watching TV in your land room, that's what it's like to be a great photojournalist. <laughs> and you will have, without doubt, one of the most exciting lives. So don't worry about cash. Don't worry about how you got to get it. We're a family. We'll feed you. You can come live on my lounge room floor. Everybody else does. Okay, I think we can uh, take one more question. Um, it's more a comment than a question. Um, I'm just going to take the timeline out about 50 years and back to perhaps Faye and the work that you're doing. I think perhaps what has got lost here or was, was briefly touched on by you was that whole thing with Getty where they no longer put a byline credit for the photographer. And I'm thinking 50 years from now, any of you who might be aspiring young photographers, if you work for someone like Getty, and I'm not suggesting you don't, but we'll lose a whole generation of names of photographers like Simon or, or um, Bruce Possel, anybody um, who has been a photographer, a well-known photographer in Australia, people like... Uh, Michael here too, who's a lot of his work isn't necessarily known by Australians, but he's done so much work overseas and, and fabulous publications. And so it disturbs me that a company like Getty, as a behemoth and as arrogant as they are, aren't prepared to put the photographer's name there as well, because in 50 years' time, you'll be looking at a body of work, it'll just be called Getty, and nobody will know that Simon or Michael or whoever took that photograph in an area, in an era, was Australian, did this great work. There won't, there, I don't know any other profession or artist whose name cannot be credited to a work that they have, have, have created. And yet photography is going to be it. It doesn't happen in music or art or any other thing. You will know that the fashion designer, whoever is behind it, but photographers are losing their names to these companies and I don't know how Getty got on to doing this in the first place, but by golly, whoever's in the photography agency, you know, membership ought to all band together now and insist on getting credit lines because that is just... It's just no go. No, no artist should lose their name. Well, thank you for that. I think we don't need to comment on that. I mean, it's absolutely right. So I'm going to wind things up now. Uh, thank you all for coming. Um, I hope you uh, you enjoyed it. Um, I hope that I wasn't I wasn't too pessimistic. But if I was, I'm just an old man, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and don't take whatever I said all that seriously. So thanks for coming. Please thank the panelists. For you. <laughs>